0: Hi, and welcome to Vax Talk. Vax Talk is a podcast for people who are interested in vaccines and vaccine advocacy. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines.
1: And I'm Nathan Boonstra, a general pediatrician from Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Thank you very much for listening.
0: And we have a great show today. We've got uh, guests Sarah Dupre and Ginny Sue, who are both going to talk about. Um, their various background working with vaccines and legislation and uh, vaccine advocacy. Um, And uh, before we do that, I just want to have a quick announcement about Voices for Vaccines. Um, We have become a partner in the March for Science, and that means that uh, we're going to be supporting the March for Science, which is a nonpartisan march that uh, supports scientific principles and advocates for um, good good science uh, throughout our country so very excited about that um and due to uh a lot of member requests we also have made um, t-shirts in case anyone wants to wear a pro vaccine t-shirt to the march for science and you can find those at cafe press.com slash voices for vaccines pretty exciting I'm, nathan
1: yeah i think that's great i was already planning to march and this is actually new to me uh, as of this recording. So I'm excited that uh, I already have my shirt picked out, though. Uh, so <laughs> I'll just have to have like some a vaccine sign or something like that. Hey, I'll be sure to post too. something for you. OK, buttons. Perfect. Buttons, too. Buttons I can do.
0: All right. Excellent. Um, all right. Let's let's head to Around the Web. What do you think about that?
1: That sounds great. What you got?
0: So I have found this really cute thing online that I love from the Ontario Ministry of Health First of all, Canada is so cute because they have ministries of health, and I love that. Um, and so it is this—it's <laughs> this photo campaign that they're doing called "But I Vaccinate." Um, And so in it, uh, people are posting sort of their parenting, their minor parenting failures. Uh, You know, kids who got into the makeup or kids with food all over their faces or kids who stayed up till midnight because the parents were too tired to put them to bed. (laughs) And then they're hashtagging it, but I vaccinate. And so it's really adorable and I love it. And I'm mentioning it now because I'm hoping more people will kind of hook into that social media campaign.
1: What kind of what? was it largely videos or what I haven't seen this but I've I, been a little off social media with, with spring break and everything so I, I haven't been doing it
0: just found it this morning and it looks oh, like sure. it's just getting started so oh, it's okay. really cute um and I i found it on Facebook I need to look for it on Instagram and Twitter too Um, but it's mostly just photos and then people you know being like well I let my kids stay up till midnight because I was accidentally watching the basketball <laughs> game but I vaccinate <laughs> so that was very cute
1: yeah that's cool I'll have to look that up. Yeah. So I think we'll move into, so my around the web segues pretty nicely into what we're going to be talking about today uh, as far as politics and policy. So it's talking about the this Tom Price statement. And I actually had a little bit of a different view, I feel like, than most of uh, the other physicians uh, on what he said. Did you want to read this, this statement yourself, or would you like me to read it in context, Karen?
0: well um yes so um absolutely i'm uh, oh hang on i got the wrong paper here um so the whole context was he was on a cnn town hall and uh, a woman from michigan stood up and said asked him say for ethical or religious reasons someone was doesn't want to take chemo doesn't want to have their child to have immunizations or doesn't want to have a blood transfusion would you be penalized more or less if you say I want to go for a different form of therapy for the disease how does that work and so price is responsible well, this is key because it gets to the uniqueness of each and every individual and how they do their health care you might want a plan that allows this type of hospital care for you or this doctor to be on the plan or an alternative health provider ought to be able to select the plan that matches your needs instead of the federal government telling you this is what you've got to buy Okay, so Wolf Blitzer interrupts and is like, Dr. Price, you're a physician. You believe in immunizations. You believe all children should get a shot for polio and other diseases. And Price says, well, that's a different question. The question... She asked is, should Denise be able to buy the kind of coverage plan she believes in is most appropriate for her? The question you asked is, what kind of health care ought to be provided to individuals? There are certain things we ought to do as a society, and we encourage. That's the kind of education that's so important for folks, so that they know what's best for them and their families. But should it be required? Measles, mumps, those kind of immunizations, Blitzer asked. And Tom Price said, I believe it's perfectly a perfectly appropriate role for government. This happens by and large at the state government level because they're the ones that have the public health responsibility to determine whether or not immunizations are required for a community population, whether it's growing kids or the like, or if it's an outbreak of a particular infectious disease, whether immunizations ought to be required or or be able to be utilized. So that was the statement he made. And then, what you found was what?
1: Well, I found. Well, I want to kind of front load this with a lot of. Um, <clears throat> context from my perspective being that I have a lot to criticize about Tom Price. I wanted I would not be the it, it would not be my first choice to be defending him in any real context. Uh, I have a, a lot of concerns about uh, some other things that he's proposed. I certainly have a lot of concerns about health care in this country uh, and the AHCA and the ACA repeal and all that. That being said, when I read this, myself and kind of started to see the tweets the tweets were all very um obviously critical of his statements and i thought very disproportionately critical of his statements because when i read his statements here especially if you read them in context reading what he's you know this isn't like a he got asked a question about whether or not he thinks vaccines are good kind of like format this was What is going to happen with this new plan if somebody chooses to not follow? Basically, if they want to get alternative medicine, is what it sounds like the audience member is asking. You know, is it going to cover, are they going to be penalized for not doing certain things? as is the case in other countries um, where you can be penalized and not get certain benefits if your child's not immunized and whatnot. What is the AHCA going to do in that situation, which he kind of answers. And then Wolf Blitzer kind of goes back to the immunization portion of that and does a change, right? And Mm -hmm. then he kind of changes and says, but you think they should be required, should they be required? And Price does, he's kind of answering that in context. And he actually does say, it's different he says that things like immunizations which affect more people that it is perfectly appropriate for those things to be required, but it's a difference between what's required, like for school entry, which is determined at the state level, that's just the way it is, versus what's going to be, you know, whether or not a a plan, your, your health care choice in terms of your insurance plan. And I actually read this and think, well, there are some really good takeaways from this statement, especially when we've been so, with good reason, nervous about what our our new administration, our national administration, what their approach is going to be to immunizations. uh, When I see Price, yes, he can be criticized for not being strong enough. I would love the first, you know, 10 words to be something on the order of, uh, absolutely vaccines are safe, they're effective, they save lives. But he's kind of answering in the context of another question here. And he does say it's perfectly appropriate to require immunizations. And this happens at the state level. And he does say that people ought to get immunizations and mm-hmm. that they should be educated about how important this is. And all of those things, I think, are takeaways that are missed in all these headlines that I'm seeing on on um and and tweets and and posts about that are focusing on the fact that he says that it is up to the states which is an absolutely true thing i don't see a lot of people advocating for a national school vaccination standard certainly a discussion people can have but that's not something i see us going for and so to criticize him about saying that it's a state decision seems like an odd criticism and a missed opportunity. I don't like these opportunities that are missed. We really need to control the narrative. And I feel like the narrative here is our, uh, the, is that the head of the HHS is in favor of vaccinations, thinks they should be required, and agrees with requiring them on the state level.
0: I right. And, and if and if you agree with that, get involved at the state level.
1: Right. There are plenty of things he could have said that would have been better. I read a great Vox article this morning about how that would have been a great segue into saying how how much better states can do in terms of requiring how, how a lot of states are lax. But giving a little bit of. Benefit of the doubt in that again, he's answering it in the context of healthcare choice in the AHCA, not mm-hmm. really a straight up like, what do you think about vaccines? Should more states require vaccines? Question.
0: Right, and just so people understand, some of the uh, some of the headlines in the in the tweets were, were were very I would call them huffy or just very you know they, it's like they needed a fainting couch after they heard this. Um, yeah, it, there it was, was it...
1: disproportionate. Yeah, t- Tom Price
0: to Bustle said Tom Price wants vaccine policy left up to the states and that's beyond terrifying and then this tweet um I actually had to reply to because only kids <laughs> who live in certain states are vulnerable to certain diseases because infections recognize state borders and that was Chelsea Clinton yeah uh. so it it, 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 ha- it had it made a big splash among a lot of people um who don't who aren't very involved in vaccine legislation and advocacy. And so that's why I think this program today is really important because we can spend a lot of time talking about how does this really work? like What happens at the federal level and what happens at the state level? And if I want to make a difference in my community, where do I go and what do I do? Um, Because I know I, I had one... I had one um one of our mutual friends who um posted something on facebook saying all the people on twitter who've never bothered to notice anything about vaccine (laughs) advocacy are all of a sudden very upset about this and i would
1: i would argue a couple of things there i've actually been uh like chelsea clinton does tweet about vaccinations fairly i've i've and i try to tweet back at her and just say hey thanks for advocating and i've done that a few times even just over the last, like, since the election or since whenever I started following her. Um, So, you know, it's not like she's one, I wouldn't say, that has been, like, silent on the issue until now, but I definitely have seen that phenomenon where I feel like a little bit just in the zeal to criticize Price, which is, you know, there are lots of things to criticize him about. Um, There is this then jumping on aspects of the statement that are probably not quite as bad and in fact again ignoring those kind of takeaways that I think are good takeaways from the statement that can be useful um, is what I saw as a phenomenon on Twitter and, and, and other places
0: right I, th- I think there is a confusion too that I want to take just a moment to clear up and that's how how do vaccines become required and so um, it's it's so state by state everyone has to remember that every state has their own constitution. Mm-hmm. And so the states get to decide basically what's required for entering school. That's where we really start. Like what's required for being in childcare and what's required for entering school. And states all have a, a variety of different things, although it's pretty similar, um, about what you have to do to enter school. I know in my home state of Minnesota, um, this, the Department of Health is very. Uh, careful to say that the requirement is an immunization record it's not the immunizations themselves it's the record to show us that you Hmm. got immunized so that people aren't like i got immunized i'm fine i'll just send my kid to school you actually have to show the record sure um and then so how and so the states decide as as a condition of entering school when do you have to you know submit this record to whom do you have to submit it um who's the information available to um and then they decide how you know how stringent they are in making sure that everyone gets their records in so how how easy is it to say but i don't want to immunize my kid um and there are a variety of things that people can do to to not immunize their children from Um, you know, uh, uh, just saying I don't want to and signing a form to having to say that they're religiously opposed and stating their religion to, um, you know, not getting any of that and having to just homeschool their kid if they don't want to immunize. So there's the, the whole patchwork across the country. So that's where Tom Price was really right he was correct in the way that he was describing it and if and if people don't like that then that's a different discussion we have to have yeah
1: and i i do want to say that i mean i think we had a lot of mutual friends people i respect that um made strong statements about uh price's statement and i you know i i certainly don't want to say you know don't criticize this criticize this this is what we should focus on and not this but i do want to kind of give There's plenty of things you can criticize in what he said uh, in terms of the strength of advocating for vaccinations and whatnot. But um, I do just want to make sure kind of give that idea out there that although there's a lot of things that are worrisome right now, it is important to um, one of the best ways that we change that and change public perception and even change policy is determining what those those narratives are and that's true on this level that's true on like in our on, in our own social groups in our um you know, amongst our friends and whatnot and so being cautious about what is the narrative that you're pulling out of a given thing is is something to be mindful of anytime that you hear something like this and are thinking about posting about it
0: absolutely um so you know, in the the from the outset, it's interesting because this town hall was about um, touched on the uh, the American Healthcare Act. Yeah. I, have I to had think to about
1: what I happened. reviewed that this morning. I wanted to make sure my letters were in order.
0: Joining us now is Sarah DePrey, um, who is a board member of Every Child by Two, a friend of Voices for Vaccines and a wonderful va- pro vaccine organization. Um, and I kind of wanted to turn because. A lot of uh, Secretary Price's statements... Oh, before I do this, I should just mention that Sarah's got some technical difficulties, so you'll notice that her audio sounds a little bit different, but because she's awesome and we love her, we're just going with it. Um, so Secretary Price had a couple of statements um, that he began with about the American Health Care Act. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to start with you and ask you about... Um, what this new healthcare act versus ACA? What is the effect on immunizations? Is that something that we should be that that was another missed opportunity to ask him? Is that yeah? So we thanks be for that question. About? I think
2: um, I think Nathan was exactly right that what what Secretary Price said about the state role in um, determining vaccine requirements is the state. I mean that is true and that has been. Um, administration's position for previous administrations as well um, and so that in and of itself to me didn't signal any kind of concern about anti-vaccine advocates running the, the Department of Health and Human Services but I think as Nathan said there was a real missed opportunity um, for actually for Wolf Blitzer to then follow up um, and ask about what the effects of the um, ACA repeal and actually the president's budget, um, which we saw kind of a high level outline of later in the week on Thursday, and what, what, what the effect those policies would have on immunization, because I think what we saw both in the budget and in the um, push to repeal the Affordable Care Act is a real, um, I think, lack of consideration for what that those policies will mean for vaccine access so in terms of the Affordable Care Act repeal if you'll remember one of the major features of the Affordable Care Act is the Public Health and Prevention Fund which is a big pot of money that goes to core public health activities including um including about half of cdc's budget on immunization aside from vaccines for children but the other activities that cdc engages in to ensure that adolescents and adults have access to immunizations and so the legislation that is before congress right now would repeal that fund and that would have a significant impact on resources at cdc and then you know the states to carry out these immunization activities the other thing things that are concerning are, of course, loss of of insurance coverage, both for the Medicaid and the non-Medicaid populations. And um, one of the other features of the Affordable Care Act was creating essential health benefits for Medicaid, which includes immunizations and first dollar coverage for immunizations, and the ACHA would roll that back as well. And so I think for those of us who care about immunizations, those are real areas of concern. And then there's also this um, document that the White House put out on Thursday, which is very high level. It doesn't have a lot of detail, so we don't know exactly what it means. But there there are um, some ominous words in there about um, about reforming CDC and you know realigning programs in order to avoid duplication, and a big number for HHS budget being cut. Um, across the board. And all of those kinds of things can have effects on immunization access if the goal is to consolidate programs and then slash them. Um, The budgetary effects on on immunization programs as well as as other core public health activities could be significant. I mean, immunization infrastructure is more than just vaccine purchase, but it's also having you know, well-funded well, well funded state health departments that can do all those kinds of activities around immunization information services and surveillance and responding to an outbreak with vaccines when appropriate. So I think that those cuts that we are seeing the White House um, suggest should raise concerns in the mind of the advocacy community.
0: So Sarah, let me ask you a little bit more on that. Um, I uh, did something foolish. I waded into a, a comment section on my local paper um, that was concerned about how much money might be, get cut from our state and local health departments uh, because of the AHCa. Uh, and you know, I, I kind of made the point that you know pu- public health needs to be funded and and uh, s- someone commented back on me and this is why it's always a mistake to comment on comment sections right that um, states should fund their own thing and why should the federal government provide it um, and so I, I'm wondering if um, you can explain a little bit to our audience the the purpose of having the CDC funded the uh, funding immunization at the CDC level and then the federal government um, giving money to, to State and local governments. What what difference does that make? I mean, Is I that important? I think it's hugely important. I think you know um, the states just don't have the financial resources, given all the other activities
2: states um, you know pay for, to actually provide for the hundreds of millions of dollars that you need for a robust immunization program. I mean, I think that even with the the resources that um, saw flow toward immunization in the, during the Obama administration with the Public Health and Prevention Fund, as well as other, you know, the annually appropriated CDC dollars, you're still seeing gaps in immunization coverage. So I think it's unrealistic to expect that the states with their, I mean, unless they were to raise taxes many, you know, tenfold, I mean, I think it would be unrealistic to expect the states to have the resources in order to fund these activities. I also think that know, as we always say, infectious disease knows no border. So to the extent we have global health programs, we also need to have national programs where we can do surveillance across the country and understand where the hotspots are, where the immunization coverage is low. and may need um, certain kinds of reinforcement from the federal government or the research. Federal government supports research to understand what interventions work in order to improve immunization rates. And it makes sense to do that at a, national and federal level to have those kinds of resources leveraged instead of asking each state to undertake those activities all by
1: themselves. And I suppose we're I mean even if we talk about on a state level increasing taxes like you said increasing taxes tenfold or something we're still dealing with a fairly significant amount of health care disparity between states. I mean, dealing with i mean, one of the things that a nas- national funding helps with is making sure that states with, you know, with a lower tax base, with more uh, residents that are of lower socioeconomic status or whatnot, um, that they're still getting immunizations. That they're still getting the basic health care needs met. And that is not going to be solved on a state-by-state level. It's going to disadvantage quite a number of people, wouldn't you say?
2: I think that's right. I mean, I think you see disparities, particularly in adult immunization, but also in childhood, based state state by state. And part of it is a function of what the state, how the state chooses to spend its resources. Um, and if a state chooses not to devote a lot of resources to immunizations, then you know those the citizens of those states will suffer but i think what you saw when congress established the vaccines for children program in 1993 you really saw the federal government step in and say this is an important activity to undertake for the health of the nation for the nation as a whole we need to have our immunization rates up as high as possible in order to protect the herd and so that that program um, which has been wildly successful in addressing, for example, disparities in immunization rates in the pediatric population, took took the the, the enterprise of vaccinating kids out of Medicaid, out of the state Medicaid dollars and the, go- and the dollars the governors were putting towards immunization, and made it federal. And so we now have an extremely robust pediatric vaccine program that is, um, you know, obviously based on the needs of the individual state and the states still establish their requirements and their mandates for school entry and daycare, for example, but there are the federal dollars to back it up so that there's no excuse for states not to have, at least from a resource standpoint, the uninsured Medicaid kids as vaccinated as they can be. So I think we have demonstrated with Vaccines for Children program a really important role for the federal government in ensuring immunization rates. We don't have the same kind of program, unfortunately, for adults. And I think the Affordable Care Act was the beginning of that by requiring first-dollar coverage Mm -hmm. for the adult Medicaid population as well for prevention.
1: As a pediatrician, I love being able to say to my families that, because I do get questions like, is this vaccine going to be covered? Is this going to be, am I going to be able to get this for my kid? And there's nobody that I have to turn away from being able to get shots. I just think that's great that I don't have to look anything up. I can confidently say, yes, you can get your child immunized with these recognized vaccines and parents don't have to worry about that. I think that's uh, tremendous and, and just the amount of uh, protection that we're able to provide for these kids and how that's changed over the decades, I think is an incredible victory. Uh, for what we've done, and for what every child by do. Well, has done. I, I
2: couldn't agree more, and I, mean, I think, as I say, we you know when I worked for Mr. Waxman, um, we introduced legislation to create um, to create a program similar for adults because that's kind of the next frontier and where we really need to also be putting resources. And so, I think that if we don't have the the dollars to public health departments and medicaid to ensure that adults are immunized that will be frankly a major step backwards for the health of the nation
0: absolutely so sarah let me ask you um say i'm an an average person and i'm not necessarily paying attention to politics or immunization or all that stuff um if the ahca went through as is which probably won't happen but if it happened i know there i know the votes coming up on it this week and if um, the president's budget went through um what changes would i see in my ability to vaccinate my children or in my community's health where well, i so am
2: i think that the changes some changes would be more immediate than others so you know the 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 rollback of the Medicaid expansion wouldn't happen until 2020, and, um, but you would start to see. I think you would start to see some real challenges um, in the individual insurance market, and you know concerns about premiums going up for certain populations. And I think the extent to which insurance becomes more expensive, um, you know, that will have. an impact on the ability to vaccinate. So if you can't afford, if you are a 55 year old or a 60 year old who cannot afford uh, an insurance plan, it's going to be really hard for you to get your shingles vaccine. Um, And so I think that that is one of the major concerns we have, and I think the other the concern that's probably most immediate as people are thinking about advocacy activities around the this legislation are the cuts to CDC, the the zeroing out of the Public Health and Prevention Program fund, which would which um, funds so much of CDC's core immunization work. Um, that coupled with, and again, we haven't seen specific numbers for the budget, but but if there are major hits to the cdc budget i think the combination will mean that states just won't have the money to provide good immunization services to their citizens
0: well that that sounds kind of scary (laughs) um so what you know i'm still that same person um what what can I do? Uh, you know, what? Sh- what should well, I, mean, I do? Well, I think you one think? of the things
2: that's been interesting to watch just just since the election has been um, real citizen engagement on a whole range of issues, and it's been fascinating to see you know these town halls and to read the stories about 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 voters and frankly, probably non voters reaching out to their members of Congress to let them know what's important. And so I think that this is a great opportunity for um, those of us in the vaccine community who really care about this, um, this important intervention, to work together to make sure that members of Congress know that we care about immunizations and we expect the federal government to continue to play a major role in ensuring that the public health is protected so calling your members of congress um, you know going to the the websites of advocacy organizations like you know like you guys like every top by 2 and signing up to you know to the uh, action alerts and to the other um, organized advocacy activities again they're really centered on ensuring that Members of Congress appreciate that there is a broad constituency out there for basic public health services, and that these services are important to our kids. They're important to our grandparents. They're important to you know our parents. And and without them, the the public's health will suffer. And they need to pay attention to that. So I think it's the great kind of grassroots organizing and reaching out to to Congress that we've been seeing um, a lot of over the last three months. It's been really heartening to me as a former Hill staffer to see the level of engagement, and I think the more the better.
0: Okay, Sarah, uh, before we let you go, and I just want to say thank you so much for joining us, I, I just want to ask you a fun question, and that's, um, which vaccine is your <laughs> do favorite?
1: I I, do I have to choose one? Um, <laughs> 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 could have given her some warning on this one maybe <laughs> um i've never been asked which my
2: favorite vaccine is um, and i guess if i had to choose and, I I
1: had and this doesn't have to this doesn't have to be like which you think is most important this is like which one do you feel like is the friendliest do you feel a connection to, yeah. like, like, to you really like you just really yeah. like you know has has treated you I, well you know, I anything don't really like have a that thing for the mmr
2: vaccine. <laughs> I'm
1: all about measles so yes, I
2: know. <laughs> um am i allowed to talk about disney <laughs> but i think
1: i think yeah, Disney go for have measles vaccine a whole new sheen so
0: i i think if i had to choose one i'd, I'd choose mmr <laughs>
1: That would be measles. Great. great.
0: I feel I feel like I could make a BuzzFeed quiz on this. Like I yeah. I can tell like your personality type based on your favorite vaccine. Mm-hmm. Sarah is a Sarah's a good tradition. Well, vice versa,
1: we could do a total like a Pottermore sorting, yeah, uh, program to assign. It'd be like your Patronus vaccine. It would be mm-hmm. we would we would tell you we would ask you a bunch of questions that don't seem to be related at all to anything, and then we would figure out what your Patronus vaccine is. That's a great idea, Karen. You should put that on the site.
0: I'm, I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Thank you so <laughs> much, Sarah, for joining us. It was a great roundup about sort of what ha- is happening nationally. And, y- you know, uh, starting with your Tom Price around the web thing sort of brings us to, so if states really do decide what happens uh, as far as requiring vaccines, what are the states up to this year And so I sort of made a list of different states and what sorts of legislation they are proposing related to vaccines. Um, And so I'll just kind of go through this quickly. Um, There are a number of states who want, who have bills where they want to post rates on websites or report rates to Department of Health or Department of Ed. Yeah, I saw that that, seem pretty common,
1: which it seems like you know not too controversial of a thing as right. compared to like dealing with exemptions and such but well, it's nice to see that pushed at least in that direction that people want to know
0: well, and you know, I, I think in some of the states you could probably make a case that you don't need a bill for it. I think that the Department right. of Health could look at that and say that this is public information and we can mm-hmm. post it publicly. Sure. But that's Arizona, Connecticut, New York, and Oklahoma, and Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, states that want to add an educational component so parents have to go through some sort of education before they um, get an exemption to vaccine requirements. Mm-hmm. And that's Connecticut, Minnesota, New York, Oklahoma, Texas, and Utah. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are states, here's bad bills, states who want to add philosophical exemptions. So they want to add on to um, making it easier to just say no to vaccines. Um, And then we have Hawaii, Iowa, New Jersey, Rhode Island. Yep, Rhode Island and West Virginia.
1: Not anymore on Iowa, by the way,
0: no, not anymore no, um on the uh, the uh, the other bad side of that is states that have informed consent bills, and I'll talk about this in a second what that means. Minnesota, Oklahoma, Oregon, Texas, and Washington again, informed consent bills bad. Um, states that want to ban vaccines due to some ingredients, and that's Missouri, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, on the very opposite end of that, states that want to completely eliminate any um, non-medical exemptions, Iowa. So um, a lot of different kinds of bills in a lot of different kinds of states, which means that, you know, all the people who got really concerned about Secretary Price's statements um, can take their concern and turn it into action at the state level. Um, But you'll notice that a a lot of those states, or a lot of those bills that I was talking about um, had one important state in common, and that is the uh, big old state of Texas. And that's where our friend Ginny Sue from Immunize Texas comes in. Um, Hi Ginny, thank you for joining us.
3: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: So I just wanna say there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, vaccine related bills that have been filed this session in texas does that wow. sound right to you that sounds about right yeah um go big or go home i
1: was gonna say they say do everything everything is big in texas holy cow
0: there yeah welcome are. to texas yeah <laughs> um so the good ones would require a healthcare health pr- practitioner to provide counseling before exemptions and would remove the conscientious and religious exemption, just replace it with non-medical. It would require um, recipients of conscientious and re- religious exemptions to complete an, uh, an education module, um, and it would uh, de- the development of blank affidavit exemption forms um, that people would have to fill out for exempting, um, where they where people say that they understand the risks of benef- and benefits of um, their children being unvaccinated. Benefits, and uh, would require schools to report immunization data um, to the Department of health, health Services, which would be posted online. So those are the good ones. There's one um, more actually. Oh, uh, what's that? It's
3: it's something we filed for many years now. It would uh, make our state registry an opt-out system as opposed to what it currently is, which is opt-in.
0: Excellent. Um, and then you have some of those informed consent bills um, that, um, I want to talk about at length later too. But, um, for now, can you tell me, so all, all these big bills, um, so yeah, you mean you you've got all sorts of pharma money behind you and you're defeating them single-handedly, correct?
3: Absolutely. I'm talking to you from <laughs> my boat right now.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> now what's really going on? What, what, what is Immunize Texas and, and why are you guys necessary in the state of Texas?
3: So in Texas, um, last session, we had a situation where a senator tried to mimic what happened in California and remove the personal exemption completely. And that sort of uh, awoke the bear on the other side, and they quickly formed a pack. Uh, they go, I'm not actually even going to say their name, you can look it up. Yeah. Um, But basically, they quickly mobilized and whereas, uh, so I work closely with the Immunization Partnership, which is a nonprofit out of Houston, and they've been working on pro-vaccine legislation for years, Uh, but they've always sort of come at it from a very scientific, very research-oriented standpoint. So they would come to the Capitol bringing physicians and scientists and lots of facts and figures, but the other side, they came to the Capitol with lots of parents. Who had stories to tell and they would go up to the mic during um, session and testify in hearings and tell their stories and you know that is a, a very different kind of um, approach and you can't really have those two sides talk to each other in a way that makes sense it's just not um, productive so uh, they the immunization partnership approach we had already been working with them as a volunteer And they asked me if i would be willing to form a grassroots community group to support pro-vaccine legislation and that's how immunize texas was formed
0: i know you guys have had a couple of legislative days and i'm hoping you'll talk you'll explain a little bit about what a legislative day is how it works and tell some really fun stories about them um, because uh, i think that people don't realize that that's a really great way to get involved in um, promoting vaccines in their communities so what have you guys done with legislative days so
3: absolutely um, a legislative day is really just an organized day for all of our advocates to come to the capitol and visit legislators and make their voices heard so i do a lot of visits in the interim and um, with small groups but you know there's something about having a large group there that really makes an impact so uh, we have people bussing in from other parts because it is Texas and it's such a big state. We do have people bussing in from other parts of the state. Um, we try to get as many people registered as possible, and then we split into small teams, and we have a schedule. Um, I actually just finished up working on trying to schedule appointments with you know about fifty legislators, and. Uh, it's a kind of a mix of those scheduled appointments where you sit down, usually with a legislative staffer who is in charge of the health issues for that particular official. Sometimes you actually get to meet with the representative or the senator, um, and those are great too. Uh, but they're both they're both valuable for different reasons. Um, and then we also kind of mix in some drop-in appointments where you know we just sort of walk in and say hi, make it really quick, drop off our materials. Um, but the, the point of it really is to kind of keep our presence at the front, forefront of their consciousness. You know, um, right now, especially in Texas, the legislature is dealing with a lot of different issues that run from, you know, transgender bathroom bills to abortion bills. I mean, there's a lot going on in the Capitol. And so there's a lot of noise that they have to kind of deal with. And it's really important for us to make sure that they don't forget about vaccines and how important they are for the state and for public health. So it's really great to have all these advocates show up. We take photos with as many representatives and senators as we can. Uh, We have an actually a special treat. We're having a legislative day this Wednesday. Um, I don't know that I'm allowed to really say what it is, but we have something that we have on display at the Capitol that's gonna be really cool um, sort of for photo opportunities and such. But anyway, the point is just to really get people involved, you know, it's just like everything else that's happening in the country right now, making sure that everyone feels like they have a stake in what's happening and getting involved with uh, their, their political process. And then, um, you know, for a lot of our advocates, it's the first time they've ever done this sort of thing. So at first, they're really sort of hesitant and scared, you know, we see right now a lot in the news, people being really angry at town halls and lots of sort of aggressive back and forth. But really, on these days and and with the appointments that we set up, it's very friendly. You know, these are elected officials. It is their job to be as nice and welcoming as to their constituents as possible. So we have not really had any serious, you know, angry fights or anything. It's really more of just a sit down conversation, kind of like something you would do, you know, over dinner just tell me what you do. What, why is it important to you? You know, it's your chance to kind of tell your story about why you're a vaccine advocate. Perhaps you have small children. Um, I know uh, one of our colleagues, she has an elderly mother who has health issues. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why people get involved. And it's a way to connect with your legislator and, and explain why it's so important to you.
1: You talked a little bit uh, a moment ago about how there was this on the one side science and on the other side stories. Um, I, I, you, you, And now kind of you're mentioning how you're trying to get people to sit down and tell their stories as vaccine advocates and why they're into it. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important or what you've kind of tried to cultivate in terms of people's stories uh, when it comes to this kind of advocacy?
3: Sure. I, I think that, you know, Both sets of, both approaches are good. You know, certainly we have the science behind us. We have the facts behind us. But in terms of what happens in the sort of political arena, it has a limited effect. You know, uh, we don't often deal with legislators who have medical degrees or science degrees even. Um, There are a few of them, but they are sort of few and far between. So What really is more impactful are people and their stories. So whether it's finding um, an HPV uh, cancer survivor or um, I'm working with someone right now, their daughter is one of the youngest heart transplant recipients at Texas Children's Hospital history. Um, Those are the kinds of things that will really stick in a legislator's mind. And, and you know, you have to you have to go there since the other side is going there. You know, maybe in the past it was okay to just rely on the pie charts and the the, the percentages, but at this point it's it's more of an emotional battle than it is facts and figures and what's right in terms of numbers. So we really encourage our advocates to find that voice inside them that is more about the emotional reasons why they're there.
1: So this... um reminds me quite a bit of my experience in the last couple of months and if you're okay karen i'll talk a little bit about my experience um sure thing. doing a little bit of of advocate advocating on the hill so you had mentioned that iowa has a few bills but the kind of the biggest one was hf7 which was introduced earlier this year um by a republican uh state representative from eastern iowa and it was the essentially the introduction of personal belief or I believe they're called personal conviction uh, exemptions in the language of this bill. So Iowa has religious and medical exemptions, but we don't have like a philosophical exemption and this would introduce that. And so um, I got the opportunity to talk about it. And and so I went to the subcommittee hearing and I, I like to preface this with saying that I'm perfectly willing publicly on this podcast to say that my understanding of how a bill becomes a law prior to this was kind of a combination of schoolhouse rock plus the the entire series of the west wing that's about my like legislative education (laughs) um and uh, so i'm getting familiar with subcommittee hearings and how this works and what flows into what and how these decisions are made um also having, you know, being addicted to Hamilton, the, 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 the song The Room Where It Happens is going through my head while I'm standing there in this room. And so it's a subcommittee meeting with uh, two Republican uh, representatives and one Democratic representatives and also representative and also at the table is a state senator who was there from northern Iowa who was in support of this bill. He was just there, I don't know, to add his own voice. He wanted to talk about it. So. It was interesting. The The room, which has a bunch of tables for other subcommittee hearings, certainly our corner was the most packed. There were a lot of people against this bill. We do not want um, personal conviction exemptions in the state of Iowa. We do not want lower uh, immunization rates. So various hospitals, public health, all these different communities uh, are there with their lobbyists. And there was one person speaking in favor of the bill who is, I believe, a blogger, um, in, in, in Iowa. Um, and so we all kind of talked and set our peace, but was, what was really disheartening, um, was although the legislators who were in favor of this, of these exemptions, and we knew that we were fighting an uphill battle as far as this, uh, subcommittee hearing, uh, because we knew that some, uh, that at least these two Republican legislators had already voted, against uh adding meningococcal vaccine to iowa um like middle school and high school requirements even though yeah they had voted against it so we knew that we were again these guys were most likely going to pass this and it was going to go on um they but of course they do it in the um the, with with the front of of personal choice, which is something that we can all discuss and debate, and that's fine. You know, personal rights versus the rights of the you know the rights of people to not get these diseases. There's certainly a personal versus public uh, rights and safety discussion to be had. What there isn't to be had is you know whether or not vaccines are really safe and effective and 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 good. And that is a scientific question that's that's well answered. But even though the legislators kind of, as they when they say what their vote is going to be, um, say that this is because of their their beliefs about personal decision making and liberties, they still gave a whole lot of anti-vaccine talking points when they talked about it to us and kind of explained their vote and and in particular this state senator from Northern Iowa when he was. When I gave my piece and talked a lot about my experience as a pediatrician and children who had been harmed by diseases and the importance of protecting immunocompromised kids in the classroom, um, he, the state senator questioned me and said, well, you say that people don't have because one of my points that I brought up was that parents already have leeway. They don't, you know, we recommend the schedule. Absolutely, they should be. But to actually get into school, they can, you know, Space out and stuff like that. They already have enough leeway to make these decisions for their children. Um, The state senator was like, Well, but that MMR, that's together. And the research that I've done said that uh, shows that uh, breaking it up is safer and all that. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't seen literature that says that. And he's like, you should read it. And I'm like, let me rephrase that. I read a lot about the MMR vaccine. That's not what the literature says. The other thing that he said was that his experience with, with farm animals led him to believe that herd immunity doesn't work the way that we think it does. And I'm kind of like, you this is the first time when I am like yeah maybe the term herd immunity is bad cuz you think that it, you what you that your experience has anything to do with how herd immunity right. works for vaccines um right. But the reason that I kind of bring all this up is because also them talking about their constituents and the stories that were brought to them. So they would say all this scientific stuff and then they would say, but I've heard from my constituents. And even though they may or may not be right about whether this vaccine causes whether vaccines cause essentially autism, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ignore them. And I'm like, you know, that is just a problem powerful message as to how important stories are, because these, these legislators clearly are not scientifically minded. The legislators that are telling me that MMR vaccine, who think they know all this about the MMR vaccine or about herd immunity and don't, aren't convinced by science. They are quite definitely convinced by stories of their constituents. And so I think that the more we can tell uh, uh, our legislators about our stories and find those stories, uh, the the better we can do. Fortunately, House File 7 is uh, dead in the water. It, there was a, whatever, a funnel deadline or whatever at the beginning of the month. So that is done. Um, we've got a couple other bills that I don't think, they're, they're pro-vaccine bills. I don't think they have much of a future. In fact, one of them I don't like at all, which is the one that Um, requires a like a signature from a clergy person or some leader religious leader in your religion if you're going to get a religious exemption I don't think that that's a good idea uh, for a bill um, but that's where we are so sorry about that aside but that just reminds me of how important stories are and and getting people to tell them when they're pro-vaccine
0: That that brings a question from me, Jenny, and that is, in Texas, are you seeing that um, some of the people that you're visiting have told you, I have heard from a lot of anti-vaxxers before you guys got to me?
3: So, I I think this is probably true in all the states where this fight is happening. You know, for the other side, this is a very, very passionate issue. And their supporters, they mobilize very quickly and, and they are willing to drive hundreds of miles to get to the Capitol. They're willing to, you know, bring their gaggle of kids with them. And, uh, you know, that is something that I struggle with because while the majority of people in Texas, I mean, the vast majority of people in Texas still vaccinate, which, you know, implies that they understand that vaccines work and they're effective and safe. It's very hard to get them to really show up and, and speak up. vaccines. Um, It's almost taken for granted. You know, we talk about it all the time, like, how do I motivate people? You know, what can I do to light that fire under them and get their hearts racing and get them, you know, worked up enough where they're willing to pick up the phone and call their legislator or show up at the Capitol or, you know, sign a petition. Um, And I still don't know that I have the magic answer. I, I really do a lot of boots on the ground sort of hunting for my supporters. Uh, I, right. I comb threads on the on the Facebook, on internet uh, articles, you know, looking for people who are willing. Because, you know, if someone's going to write a pro-vaccine comment on an article, they're already one step ahead of everyone else that just reads it and doesn't do anything. So I, I sort of look at those comments and think, okay, maybe that person will be a supporter. Maybe they'll be an advocate. Maybe they're willing to take it a little bit further. Um, so... Yes, I would say, to answer your question, it is an issue because I will often go into a legislator's office and, you know, just kind of asking some background questions, you know, how many calls from the other side have you gotten? And it's not unusual that they've gotten 50 calls from the other side.
0: And hundreds of emails.
3: And literally one or two calls from our side. Right. And they know the numbers, they know the statistics, and they know that that Texans are vaccinating, but they're worried about their chances for reelection. They're worried about how they're going to do in the primaries. And when they have a sort of angry mob of people that are calling and threatening them, you know, 50 people, uh, it scares them. Yeah. And then they don't necessarily want, it's not so much that they're gonna necessarily vote for um, you know, the bills that are not gonna help our rate, our immunization rates, but they're just gonna—they're kind of not gonna vote on anything. They don't want to get involved. they yeah, don't, they
0: don't want, even want to hear some of the bills. Exactly.
3: They don't want. Um, you know, we have a representative here. She she uh, authored many of the HPV bills that are going to help. You know, improve our vaccination rates and give us better data so that we know how to outreach. You know, how to focus our outreach efforts a little bit better. Um, and they vilified her. They. Mm-hmm spread her name. I mean, they just dragged her through the mud and she's a really strong person. So we're not worried about her necessarily, but I know that their other, the other representatives are watching what happened and they don't, they don't want to get involved like that. I mean, no, no, no representative wants their phone lines tied up or a bunch of angry people waiting to talk to them when they show up in the morning for work, you know, and their staffers have to deal with it too. You know, they, They have to answer those calls. They have to speak with them and and listen to them and write notes and, you know, treat them with respect. And when it's 50 versus one or two, it it just it leads to an inequity and a sort of a a perversion of justice and of, of what's right, because then you have the minority really dictating the conversation in what's supposed to be a majority led democracy. So, um you know, I, that's why I do things like this podcast. I'm really appreciative of the, of the opportunity because, you know, we need to get the word out across our whole nation that right. things are happening under your noses. You may not have paid attention. I certainly understand I'm sort of new to all of this as well, but it is happening and the numbers are not good. And eventually we're going to see more and more outbreaks because of really a political decision, which is, I think, um, uh, unfortunate and we have a chance to turn it around but it requires actually being politically involved
0: absolutely so another thing i know you and i have talked about this before um and i'm going to go on um a nathan style little jag here <laughs> sorry
1: <Nathan. laughs> great i've already got a <laughs> reputation
0: this is great um is that uh Uh, There's sort of an emboldening right now um, among anti-vaccine activists for a variety of reasons. There's not one reason. Um, And they're filing some really just crummy bills. Um, You have actually a bad bill in texas that where a parent must give informed consent including receiving the vaccine information statement sheet um and info on vaccine court and then a list of vaccine ingredients um and uh so that's a bad bill minnesota has a similar bill ours is house file 2005 and it's probably the worst piece of legislation I've ever seen. And and I asked someone who's been in in the business for 30 years, and she said, yes, it's it's the worst piece of legislation she's ever seen, too. And it would require... parents to receive all of the package inserts um, for the vaccines that they're about to give their children. So that's, um, when you calculate it, that's like, like, for two months shots, that's like 145 pages of information written at the college level in English. So, you know, if you're a parent whose first language is Spanish or Somali, um, (laughs) good luck to you. Includes information like here's the chemical makeup of the vaccine. So, you know, that's one thing. And then they have to sign a form saying this vaccine could kill your child. Um, and then the the real kicker for me is that it sets up a database where um, doctors are required by law to report every single um, va- vaccine reaction. And it would be a statewide database. And it would be maintained by an anti-vaccine group in Minnesota called the Vaccine Safety the vaccine safety council of minnesota so they have like access to people's medical information um so it's this real stinker of a bill but it falls under the umbrella of these informed consent bills where anti-vaxxers are saying people aren't being given enough information before before agreeing to vaccinate their child um and so what's what's the matter with you know information and that is a really tricky bill to fight no no matter what its incarnation because you have to convince legislators that that this information shouldn't be mandated to be given out. And and then you have to educate them about what a package insert is and about, you know, all like it, you have to do the whole thing. It's it's an entire education seminar you have to do with a legislator and, and often one-on-one over and over again. And so, you know, I, I'm, I just mentioned this because it's a bill that I think is going to be filed probably in a lot of states. You're going to see it in a lot of different places. It's coming to your home hometown soon Um, how are you guys fighting your informed consent bill in uh, Texas
3: so it's definitely a hard one to unpack Um, you know I I think here in Texas there's a lot of push for that one especially the one that uh, requires giving out the ingredient info the excipient info because they almost got it through in Oklahoma and uh, it's basically the same bill here in Texas that was filed you know, what I try to make sure to, you know, you only have so many minutes when you meet with a staffer or a representative or a senator. Um, You know, the, the appointments even are maybe 15 minutes long. So you have to really, you know, boil it down to the essence of what you're trying to get across. You can't really do all of that education, although I'd love to, but there just usually isn't time. So, What we find effective is definitely dropping off a packet that has more background info and more of our arguments in it. But in terms of face-to-face, what I just try to explain to them is, you know, this is not information that was designed for regular public consumption. This is uh, information that is meant for people who are designing vaccines, people in epidemiology, pharmacists, you know. And, And what we've seen is that Having access to that kind of information leads to a lot of misinformation, really. A lot of the sort of strange theories you hear about, like vaccines containing aborted fetal cells or uh, cells from monkeys or dogs. I mean, I've seen every kind of possible animal, fill in the blank. Um, that's where it comes from. And it's because of just, you know, people not having the background and the Sort of education in a topic, looking at an end product and then trying to work backwards and not really doing it successfully. You know, I, I am a regular mom. I do have some, you know, background in science, but I, I never worked in pharmacology. I've never really uh, designed any sort of medication. And so, you know, I try to tell them, like, as a parent, what I think is the right thing to do is to trust my pediatrician. And to trust people that have spent their lives studying this and researching it to tell me what's best. Sure, it's good to question a little bit. But, you know, at the end of the day, do I have the time to go into a lab and make a vaccine on my own without these ingredients and figure out how it all works? No, because I'm busy making sandwiches and making sure my kids are dressed before they leave the house, you know? So uh, to me, there's... Just uh, a lot of ways that you can go about it. Each person has a sort of different angle. But for me, it's definitely like trusting. Who do you trust? Making sure that the information that you give out to the public is actually something that they can understand. Because otherwise, you're just inviting more conspiracy theories and just a misunderstanding of the facts. And especially with vaccines, there's already plenty of that on the Internet yeah. We certainly don't make we don't need to make it required for pediatricians offices.
1: And I would think the health literacy aspect would be a big uh, that would be an angle I would want to take when talking to legislators about why this is not a good law. I mean, there are laws all over about health literacy and making sure that all that things that are given to families are at a certain level, a certain a level of understandability so that everybody can understand them and by far a vaccine package insert does not meet that and it seems like a it's a disservice to families if anything you're not giving them information that everybody nearly everybody can can understand right. uh, you're giving them information that that is uh, that some people I mean yes people are, Uh, we want people to take in information and make health decisions, but not everybody has the same level of health literacy by far. And if we're not being understanding of that, we're doing a bad job of educating people.
3: Right. I mean, I, I, you know, I try to use metaphors sometimes when I talk to them, like, do you, do you get a list of every product that's used in the manufacturing and growing of bananas? No, you don't because that's ridiculous and it would not make sense. And then no one would eat bananas because they'd all be scared by these chemicals I see. Um, and it's similar I think with medications. And the other thing I think that sort of I try to emphasize is why is there this special treatment of vaccines? We don't require this information to be given out when we take Tylenol or when we tell people to give their kids Benadryl if they have allergies. So why is it that the vaccines have this special treatment And what is the purpose of it? You know, I also emphasize that. What do you think is really going to be the practical effect if you if you require that this information be handed out? You're saying that it's not going to affect immunization rates. I think you're wrong. And uh, you know, the places where we've seen this happen on the internet
0: support what I'm saying. Yeah, the the purpose really is to affect immunization rates. They want fewer people immunized.
1: Right. And they don't, I mean, we already do the, the informed consent part of immunizing is the vaccine information statement, which is required to be given. And this is something that I get on a soapbox about, um, in my, like at my hospital and in my clinic, um, that it's important to be given to every family, every vaccine, every time doesn't matter if they it's their first or their 17th flu shot, they should get their vaccine information statement. They should get it in At least have the opportunity to choose to read it or not read it before they get their vaccine, Um, and that is basically that is the that's the informed consent that we're talking about. That is a a document that has the actual risks and benefits of a vaccine. Uh, Not you know vaccine inserts list everything that's ever been reported, even when it wasn't. Caused by the vaccine, Uh, they list all kinds of things for legal reasons. Um, But the vaccine information statement does actually talk about risks on every vaccine. Talks about the benefits and the indications and contraindications for all these vaccines. It does it on a a better level for health literacy uh, um, for for health literacy, and it uh, is it is required to be given to every family, and that fulfills those in a much better way than whipping out, you know, gigantic uh, package inserts uh, and, and passing those out.
3: Absolutely. I totally agree with you.
1: Okay. So, Jenny, I just, would just one more question before we kind of wrap things up here. Um, this gigantic Texas size list of bills that you have looking at you, is there one in particular that you think uh, I mean, Karen mentioned uh, the bill in Minnesota that it gives like vaccine data to an anti-vaccine group. Is there a bill in that amongst those that you think is kind of the worst pitched of them?
3: Yeah, uh, to me, the worst one that I've seen is a bill that was introduced that would make that, that would create a penalty for physicians who turn away families that don't vaccinate. So hmm. here in Austin, for instance, um, a very large clinic, made news because they started a policy saying, you know, we'll counsel as much as we can, but at a certain point, if a family refuses to vaccinate for the safety and health of our other patients, we will have to request that they find a different pediatrician. And the anti-vaxxers in Texas obviously took issue with that. So their bill would make it a, basically almost like a crime for a, a physician to do that and they would take away the state funding. So in Texas, that means no Medicaid and no CHIP. So,
1: so and, wow. So that really, and you see this same kind of issue going in when we talk about like defunding Planned Parenthood and stuff. What that really means is that the family, that the practice is no longer going to be able to provide health care to kids who need it the most. Correct. That's, that doesn't even make sense if you're going to penalize a clinic,
3: I, I actually had a, a sort of heated discussion with um, one of the staffers about it because I, I, you know, I was like, explain to me why you think that this is right. You know, and with that particular bill, I took an angle of uh, because this is Texas and we respect liberty as our number one priority. in the state mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I said, you know, why are you involving yourself in the doctor patient relationship like this? do you believe in free enterprise? Because if that's the case, you know, you should respect a physician's opinions and, you know, respect how they want to run their business. Are you literally telling me that a pediatric oncologist, for instance, can't say that they have this policy to protect their, their practice and and their patients? I I think that's a a big overreach. And, you know, he had his arguments as well. Um, but I just don't. I didn't feel like there was a lot of thought about how this would play out in different scenarios. I think it was a knee jerk kind of bill to file, and mm-hmm. certainly uh, not something we want to see passed anywhere, because, uh, no. you know, I know families that have kids who are immunocompromised and. This is a big deal for them. Yeah, they, they want to go
1: to a practice like that.
3: Exactly, and even for myself, even though I don't have um, any health issues with my children, I still don't really feel comfortable with the idea of going to a practice. You know, at least my my practice has the sick waiting room and the healthy waiting room. But still, you, sure. you know, there's a lot of times where you don't see symptoms, and someone's carrying a disease. Um, and I just—it's—it's it's really hard for me to stomach it. You know, these are vaccine-preventable diseases. We should not be seeing them at the rates that we're seeing now. We should be, as a state, trying to protect people and improve health across the state. And instead, we're allowing these kinds of things to be proposed. And yeah. uh, it's just uh, heartbreaking to me.
1: I'll say that you know I see—I—I I work at a clinic where we see—we see unvaccinated kids. Uh, they n- enough of them know my reputation. I don't see a whole lot <laughs> of unvaccinated kids, um, but and I do tend to fall on the side of saying that pediatricians should choose to see unvaccinated kids, because even though I know the reasons that they choose not to, I I still feel like when push comes to shove, I want to take care of kids who need health care, uh, but I by no means think it's acceptable to penalize uh, clinics that are trying to protect their patients and practice the standard of medical care by not allowing them to take care of kids who need it the most with Medicaid funding that's atrocious
0: so on that note I know Nathan said that um, he had one more question but I actually have uh, another question and then we're gonna thank you and then we're gonna tell people something really exciting at the end that's not true. Um, <laughs> uh, Ginny. Yes. What is your favorite vaccine? My favorite and
1: vaccine? I so I qualify this by saying this can be your, you know, one that you think is the most important, although I hate stratifying vaccines that way. But also just one that you feel like the most personal connection with, that you think has a nice personality um, <laughs> that is fun to be around. Yeah.
0: Pairs well with wine. Um, makes
1: you smile. Yeah, pairs well with wine.
3: Um, well, I love them all dearly. Uh, <laughs> but I'd have to say, you know, I know it's certainly a controversial one, but I am pretty amazed that we developed the HPV vaccine.
1: Oh, I yes. think that's a great answer oh, yeah.
3: because love that. Uh, my, my father, he didn't, he didn't die of an HPV related cancer, but he died of cancer. And I mean, I can't think of a single person that is not touched by cancer in some way, yep. whether it's a parent or an aunt or a grandparent. I mean, it's so prevalent now in our society that everyone knows someone who has gotten cancer. And the idea, I mean, when I grew up, it was always a death sentence. You didn't have really good treatments or outcomes, and it's improved over time for sure, but there are still a lot of them that, you know, when you get that diagnosis, you just have to sort of hope that you can last for a few years, maybe five years, 10 years. Um, And the idea that we've actually developed something that can prevent it is, I didn't think I would see it in my lifetime.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Well, on that note, I want to thank Jenny Sue for joining us and Sarah DePrey before her. Uh, It's been a great conversation. Um, And just once again, to remind you what you've been listening to, this is Vax Talk. Uh, My name is Karen Ernst.
1: And I'm Nathan Boonstra.
0: Yes, he's Nathan. You didn't say
1: anything after yours, so I just said my name. That's all.
0: Yeah, no, that's all. (laughs) I'm
1: just this guy, you know?
0: I'm leaving this in, by the way, Great. <laughs> and we want to thank you for joining us. If you appreciated today's Vax Talk, please consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and then heading over to voicesforvaccines.org support and chipping them in a couple dollars so we can keep doing this. Um, and also, as a last note, make sure you get out and do something today that makes a difference in your community's immunization rates. Bye-bye.
1: Bye
0: New York and